Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. We have been in a series entitled A Deep Calling, and today A Deep Calling to Persevere. And um, I want to read this to you here. Um, Basically, we've been residing in the book of Luke, chapter 6, rather, of that book. And it's referred to as a Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Later, there's something called the Sermon on the Mount that's mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels. The language is the same. There's questions as to whether it's the same conversation or it's very possible it's separate ones because Jesus would have been repeating some of these things a lot because this was the core manifesto doctrine that he was trying to put across. And so in here we have really the baseline of what it means uh, to be a follower of Christ. And so we've been in this and today we're in the 22nd verse. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and, res- and insult you and reject your name as evil. Aren't you glad you came to church? Okay. And it goes on, because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Let's start with prayer. Father, we are grateful. You have been with us throughout this entire season of time as we talked about last week. And you've been gracious to us. And Lord, we pause, uh, many of us, to give uh, thanks, but also to give of our tithes and our offerings, whether online or in person here today. And so I ask, Lord, that both the gift and giver would be blessed, but that you'd use these resources um, with integrity, with wisdom for your purposes. And then, Lord, that this morning that you'd meet with us by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word, give us an understanding that would change our thinking and would change our hearts and minds, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, there was a guy named T.S. Eliot. Some of you may have come across him in some of your English lit classes or so. In 1927, this guy, a very famous poet and, and writer, became a Christian in 1927. He was baptized and he was confirmed. Now, prior to Eliot's conversion, he belonged to a group of artists and writers referred to as the Bloomsbury group. Uh, They were from the Bloomsbury section of London, and so they would meet and critique and engage each other as artists and intellectuals. When news of Eliot's conversion um, hit the news, the Bloomsbury group that was his core community responded with shock and even disgust. The writer Virginia Woolf, you might have heard of her, She was the de facto leader of this group and penned the following letter to one of her peers after hearing that her colleague, T.S. Eliot, had become a Christian. Quote, I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, 
who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. That was in 1927 in England. Tim Keller is a writer and a pastor who has been in Manhattan in the center of uh, the cultural heart of our country. He's warned that secular culture in America is now at a point where, quote, the only sin is to tell people that they sin. Now think about that. The only sin really our culture sees anymore is to say to someone that that's a sin. That itself is a sin. Roughly speaking, he said, every other culture always taught the truth is something outside of me. It could be family, God, dying for my country, to be a person of honor and worth, authenticity. You had to find that truth and align your feelings with the truth. Now the understanding is truth is inside you. You go inside to find the great depths, and when you come out, you tell everyone else that you have to now accommodate me. And then this statement. What that means is two things. One, we are the first culture, not only that does not believe there's a truth out here, it's all subjective. We're the first culture to do that. Also, it's the first culture that doesn't think Christians are wrong. They don't just think Christians are wrong. They think that Christians are the problem. And so that has changed dramatically the conversation in this country. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. But please notice the attachment. Reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. In other words, because of Jesus. If you're just being a jerk, no blessing. Okay? Jerk, you get jerk response, you're a jerk, okay? But if it's because of the Son of Man, if you're taking a stand for truth, if you are channeling, if you will, the, the, the Holy Spirit in such a way, and that, that phrase probably is not the best expression of, but if, if you are facilitating things in such a way as to stand for truth, and you're being persecuted, attacked, or reviled because of that, then there's something else going on here. Now, I want to put a quick note here. We can stand for truth and not do it in a Christian fashion. Still no points for that one. We can stand for truth and not stand for it in a Christian fashion. We need to not only stand for truth, but do it in the way of Christ or in a Christian fashion. Then we are told that we could, in verse 23, rejoice in that day. We can even leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. In other words, these great heroes of the faith, these great men and women of God of times past, they treated them badly too. And so you can rejoice, because you're along that same line. There's not enough of the heroic expression and understanding, especially amongst young people, I think, within the church today. That when you stand against the culture for truth in a Christian fashion, that that's a heroic thing. No one else may see it. A lot of the greatest heroes weren't seen in what they did, but it's still the case. Now he goes on in verse 26, woe to you though, in other words, although this is, oh, I feel so badly though for you, when everyone speaks well of you. 
for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So you have a contrast between the original prophets that were treated badly, and if you're associated with them, that's a good thing because they're an attorney before God. There's something great about their name. There's a legacy, da-da-da-da-da. But if you are either doing these things in your own light or you're not a stand stand at all, then everyone speaks well of you. It's being treated like you are one of the false prophets that's out there. There was a list of degrees of persecution that was put together by FaithWorks, uh, who examines the uh, church that's being persecuted around the world. And in this, they listed 17 degrees of persecution. Here we go. First one, disapproval. Second one, ridicule. Third one, the pressure to conform. Now, these we are already experiencing, all of us at this point in time, with the most part. Disapproval, you can certainly encounter that right now. Ridicule, absolutely. Look at the articles. Pressure to conform, without doubt. Now, the next level, loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning, and alienation from community. I think these are the next four that are starting to play out. Haven't maybe hit full time to us, but they're happening now. Loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning, alienation from community. Then it goes further. Number eight, loss of employment. Nine, loss of property. Ten, physical abuse. Eleven, mob violence. Twelve, harassment by officials. Thirteen, kidnapping. 14, forced labor. 15, imprisonment. 16, physical torture. 17, murder or execution. These things are happening now, all 17 of these, to believers around the world. They have not happened beyond maybe 1 through 3, maybe pressed 1 through 7. Beyond that, it hasn't happened in this country. We've been incredibly um, blessed by that. But that situation can change. Let's be appreciative for what we've been blessed with. But let's realize these are the depths of where these things can go. Popular Christianity today is generally not biblical. Biblical Christianity is not terribly popular. So keeping that in mind, if you thought that Becoming a Christian meant that you got a bigger house, a bigger car, and a better job. Then, biblically, you are a fool. That's really what it comes down to. The first clue you should have had was the idea that the founder of this belief system died on a cross terribly. And that the other 12 didn't do too well after that either, from a commercial viewpoint. If that didn't pick up on you, then once a month at least, we practice communion here where we eat of the blood and body of Christ in symbolism at least. So your key symbol is, again, death. Again, aren't you really glad you came today? (laughs) It's just one of those services. It's like, I'm so glad. It's been a tough year and I came here today and I'm told I will suffer and die. And and, and if I'm not, I was called a fool. Well, it's a good day. So how do we respond to the reality that we're going to deal with these issues? That we're going to be afflicted, that we're going to have things happen to us? Should we call down fire from heaven? I mean, a a few pagans, extra crispy, that should resolve the situation. Again, we can stand for truth, but do we do it in the way of Christ? 
have this problem in Christianity. Really, it's annoying. It's called the Bible. And it, and it, it keeps existing. And so as we read further on, just in this passage alone, it says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your, na- love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. When it's talking about loving our enemies, that doesn't mean that we're going to have warm, fuzzy feelings about them. If we wait for those warm, fuzzy feelings to come, we are never going to reach that point. We don't reach those with people we like, oftentimes, let alone those that offend us. The love for our enemies is a love that does something for them. It's apart from how we feel about them. One writer said, we cannot love our enemies as we love our nearest and dearest. To do so would be unnatural, impossible, and even wrong. But we can see to it that no matter what a man does to us, even if he insults, ill-treats, and injures us, that we will seek nothing but his highest good. Think about that. We can't even do that with Christians sometimes. Christian offends us, and we say, well, you, you've broken the guidelines, and so now I can go full medieval on you, and, and let alone to a non-believer. But this is what we're told we're supposed to do, to consider their good in the midst of it. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those. We're supposed to not speak ill of those who are trashing us. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. You need to understand this passage a little bit more clearly. Um, this does not mean that if someone hits you upside the head with a baseball bat that you turn around and say, hey, give me another one, sir. What this is referring more probable to is the type of insult. Uh, in Jewish time, if you backhanded someone, that was a particularly grievous insult. You could even be fined in court for doing that to somebody. And so the idea of someone's insulting you in a powerful fashion that you don't engage in a back and forth with them on it. Think of it this way for our Western mindset. The age of chivalry and, and the, time, the time of the knights and the dueling. Remember they'd come up and they'd, they'd slap them with their glove across the cheek and throw it down and that means we're going to duel to the death. Uh, unless you're like a princess bride group and then it's just to the pain. Another subject. The point with this passage is saying that if someone slaps you and says and insults you in a way to try to stir up a duel, you sit here and say, I'm not going to do that. Slap me the other side. Leave the glove there. I'm not going to engage in that back and forth. This does not mean that we do not resist evil, nor does it mean that we have to be physically abused or manipulated. But when it's specifically for the cause of Christ, you're being insulted specifically for that purpose than to not engage in the back and forth that can be that kind of a violence, that kind of a, uh, of a response. That's not how we're supposed to operate. It's not how we and who we are supposed to be. It goes on at one point in time, and it's discussing the issue of 
the coats. This is a legal thing. And what it's talking about in here is there was a legal thing of what you could do with coats and all the rest. I won't get into it. I would just say this. If you get involved in legal issues, um, you need to be careful that you don't continue to pursue those to the point of vengeance. There's a justice issue in legal things that are appropriate. But if it's an issue of vengeance, and sometimes an issue of what testimony you are portraying with that, This is an example that may not fly for you, but if you're a person of means and someone who is uninsured uh, destroys one of your vehicles, but they're a person that has no means at all, to what degree should you pursue them for damages? To what degree, if people know that you're a Christian of means, but you're pursuing someone of no means, now, there may be a justice issue involved, a lesson to be learned that could be possibly there. But where it's vengeance or where there is accumulation, we need to look at how we're handling our legal processes. Now, he goes on. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he goes on. It says, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be, here's an interesting one, children of the Most High. In other words, you're going to be children of God. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So this passage here is saying not only to love our neighbors, but it said if we do these things, there's a reward. But if we do these things, we're going to be children of God. We're going to be um, related to God. There's going to be his lineage, his DNA kind of showing through us. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. He's kind to those who oppose him. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So when you're being assaulted for the name of Christ and you're responding in a godly fashion, not only do we try to put their best thing forward to them and not tear them down, not get caught up in vengeance, not being caught, drawn into inappropriate duels or situations, but we're supposed to be particularly merciful because remember God's merciful to us. Now, having put all the context, get this together, you've got the context of how this is all flowing, that this whole thing is about how we handle offense and how we present ourselves as Christians, standing for truth, dealing with persecution, and the, the face we show to the world, it's in this context that you're now progressing to this next scripture that is, in many people, especially pagans, their favorite scripture in the entire world. People who are not believers love this passage of scripture. And people who are believers constantly misunderstand this passage of scripture because they don't have it in context. But you, oh blessed ones, now have it in context. Children of the Most High, because he's kind and merciful. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you'll not be condemned. Forgiven, you'll be forgiven. In this context, what it's saying is we're not supposed to prejudge these people who are persecuting us. We're not supposed to condemn them. We can sit here and stand for truth, even use Christian methodology, but in our hearts, something else is happening. I've stood for truth. I'm being persecuted. I'm going to repay you with kindness and love and grace. After all, you're going to hell. I know it. I'm sure of it. Especially you. Actually, he's going to heaven because he's in the front row. Okay. 
It's a direct shot, guys, right from here. Right up there. Back row, think about it, all right? But don't judge. No judgment here. We're not judging. It says mainly a lot of times that we can't judge anyone or gauge anything from this, and that's not how it's supposed to be, and that's not what it's referring to. It's talking about in the context of us dealing with our enemies and our opponents. Obviously and clearly, we can judge. We're taking a stand. We're judging culture. We're taking those stands and positions. That's why we're being persecuted. But how we do that, and not judging other individuals, letting God judge those things, not condemning. This is huge. Now, it jumps here. At this point, I want to pull us out of Luke and take a quick run back to the Old Testament for just a second, and then we're going to run back up to the New Testament, okay? Don't want to lose anybody. Going over to Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, it's talking about our enemies. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, the way you read it is just how I read that. You don't read it as, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's not the way you're supposed to read this passage of Scripture. There was an article recently in a paper out west. This writer had had some individuals clear her driveway out of a massive snowfall. They used equipment, everything else like that. Did it without asking. Did a fantastic job. And she openly struggled in this op-ed over the fact that they were of a different political persuasion than her. And how she should engage them because she doesn't want to approve of them, but after all, they did this kind and wonderful act. She postulates in their head and extrapolates that they're probably like Nazis, that they're probably like Hezbollah, the terrorist group, that they're probably like, you know, differing groups like this and how horrible they must be because they hold this differing view that she holds. And she decides ultimately she'll be politely thankful, but not enough to form any kind of connection and communication. These people had done something nice for her. They had been kind to her. Maybe they were even aware of her stance. Now, another writer of a different persuasion, weighed in on the conversation, pointing out things that she'd done wrong, everything else, but then said this, quote, these neighbors should immediately pile as much snow as humanly possible back onto her driveway, hose it down, and let it freeze. I thought that was great. That's what I'd do. Absolutely, I mean, think of it. A couple of feet of frozen ice on the driveway. If I wasn't a Christian, that's what I would do. But as Christians, that's not what we're supposed to do. It says if they're hungry, give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. If there's snow on their driveway, clear it off without any expectations. It's in the original Hebrew. You just have to look. Paul runs with this. So New Testament, Old Testament, now we're running back to the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Some of you need to take that passage, slap it on your forehead in reverse, and look in the mirror every single day. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, in the sense of normal things, to be you know, within the region of the culture. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We don't have to stick our faith in everyone's faith all, face all the time. But we do need to take stands. 
And then it says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I'll repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and then he quotes Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning holes on his head. Now, when he's saying this, there's another passage, but we're going to wait for a second, not on this one. When he's saying this, that's not a statement of passive-aggressive behavior. Be kind to them and do all these wonderful things for them because it's going to burn in their hearts. No, he's saying, look at a natural reaction if they have any sensitivity at all, any humanity at all, it's going to burn in them. It's going to stick. Something's going to stir in them. If this woman had this action done, and I don't know that these were Christians, I don't know that she's a pagan, but let's say for the moment that it is. Pagan's not a bad word. It just means a non-believer, Okay. Don't give me nasty emails over it, okay? Pagan, that's all it means, all right? So this non-believer has this action done. This woman is totally in a quandary. How do I handle this? I don't like these people. I don't agree with their views. I find them repulsive. But they're doing these things. Now, if those persons did that with the idea of saying, hey, you know what? Let's go next door and clear off the neighbor's thing. (laughs) That'll screw them up. That'll mess with their head. <laughs> Let's do a really good job and then smile. <laughs> Man, she'll be going in circles all night long. <laughs> I'm just doing the scripture. <laughs> Burning coals, that's all. Just being biblical. No, you're not. If that's your motive, you're wrong. It's saying that we do these things out of love. We do these things out of unawareness of the love given to us. And that if there's any degree of humanity in the person, yes, something stirs in them. Incidentally, the book of Romans, if you ever want to just place the word Romans and put Americans in there. It was written to an international, organizational, governmental entity that was culturally dominant in the world at the time. Just put it in there. But let's go on. Because the next verse after this is this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. When we look at this passage, and then you add to this, John chapter 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Those elements together were formative in shaping Martin Luther King Jr., who was standing against racial um, hatred of his time, but attempting to use biblical approaches to all the people who were reviling him, many of them Christians even at the time. When he made the statement, these were in his head, when he made the statement, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And so we don't approach our enemies who are persecuting us as we stand for truth with the methods of Christ and a heart of love. We don't do that then with an idea of creating a burning thing in their head. That's a play out of what should take place, but that's with them. We do it with a release so that we don't end up ourselves becoming vengeful, hateful, angry people. We don't pick up the gauntlet, not because we're fearful, other than perhaps fearful of what we become when we pick that gauntlet up. But we do it with a realization that in that sacrificial moment, there can be something that transforms and changes. One of my favorite stones, this is going to seem way out there, but stay with me here, all right, is garnet. I think it's just a beautiful stone, really deep red, uh, just a pretty stone. It's interesting how they're formed. 
they're originally formed out of clay. Clay, which seems to exist on every edge of my personal property, which means you can only dig down so far before having to break a shovel. When you compress clay, it's made of little crystals. Interesting thing happens when they're heated and compressed by nature and by action. They actually grow larger. And clay turns into slate. You all know what slate is in the rocks. Go to Pennsylvania, look it up, okay? And so it turns into slate. If you compress it further and heat it further, then at that point in time, it actually turns into garnets. It gets larger. So you compress these things and heat them up, and it gets larger and turns into slate. Compress it, you know, it turns into garnet, a semi-precious stone. Amazing. When you heat it even more and compress it even more, it turns into something called starolite, not starlight, S-T-A-U, starolite. And starolite is interesting. It's formed from the original Greek phrase, starolite, which means stone cross. So from clay, compressed and heated, to slate, compressed and heated, getting larger, to garnets, and now to this starlight. And in nature, it often is a mineral that will intersect often. And when it does, I have a picture real quickly, often it will form crosses. These are all natural. All natural. Compression, heat, pressure that takes something that was minuscule and makes it larger and in many ways more beautiful and even symbolizing something that has real meaning to us as believers. Years ago, back in 1991, well, let me back it up. I have a piece of rock in my office. I have a lot of pieces of rock. I like rock. I like roll. I like rock and roll. <laughs> this piece of rock has written on it, Russian Revolution, 1991. I wrote it with a piece of marker. In 1991, the Soviet Union was falling apart. Um, a group of friends of mine and I were supposed to fly into Moscow. Two days before we were to fly in, the revolution broke out. Yeltsin's in the White House, he called it at that time. Students and others had come. They'd torn up paving stones, which this was one of, and other things to barricade around it. Tanks were in the street. A couple of people had been killed already. And uh, I remember the conversation we had at that time, and, and someone saying, well, what, do, do we still go? What are we supposed to do? And someone else saying, are you kidding? It's kind of like having a, a regular ticket for a football game and finding out it's the Super Bowl. Of course we're going. These are the kind of people I hang with, Okay. So we went into Moscow. At one point in time, we were there for a few days before going down south for what our purposes were. We went up to the White House and checked on things when it was quiet, and I picked up that stone from there and talked to some of the students, etc. People were tearing down the statues of communism, of Lenin. And then we got on a flight, we went down to southern Russia. A little town... We're at a retreat site 
But everything in the Soviet Union, it's different now, I'm sure, but was so decrepit. It was all broken down. Everything was so neglected over decades of economic disaster that, I mean, I, I can't describe to you just how t- terrible everything was. The roads were terrible, buildings, everything. This one place that we were at, um, three of us, Steve, Friday, Bjorn, and myself were in one room area, and, and there was a bathroom that was shared, and, and uh, it, there was a wooden pallet on the floor. And you stood on that wooden pallet, at any time, which was important, because any time um, anyone upstairs or you flushed the toilet, um, a little bit of residue would spread across the floor. You can define the residue however you want to define it. Our purposes in meeting there were to meet a group of men, pastors, who um, had just come out of the gulag. These are men who had been persecuted for their faith. 30, some of them 30 years, 40 years in prison. A thousand miles away in Siberia. And we were meeting them now. Most of them just coming out a few weeks ago from that type of thing. They were meeting adult children for the first time ones they would have known as a baby or, or their wife was pregnant when they left and, and they're meeting adult children 30, 40 year old men and women and we were interviewing these people and there were times that we had to stop the recordings and just step outside it was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had in my life the Soviet Union most historians believe Christianity played a huge part in the fall of it China certainly believes that because they're persecuting Christians left and right and they watched that trend because Christianity properly executed always stands for freedom, always stands for the human rights of every individual and for truth. And so as we interviewed these men who had spent 30 to 40 years in prison for their faith, they were dressed poorly, They were not terribly sophisticated, having left out a whole portion of life. We were well off. We were well dressed. We left that and went back home to the States, and we suffered nothing for it. But there's a part of my mind that has never left that small town in southern Russia. As we pursue the things of faith, we need to recognize that persecution can be part of that. And as we grow in faith and grow in understanding of the things of God, yes, taking such stands requires bravery and courage, but I've come to realize increasingly the older I've gotten that sometimes it's not even a matter of that. It's just a matter that you've grown in such a way and are shaped in such a way that you can't make any other choice but for the way of the cross. Martin Luther King, the original, here I stand, I can do no other.
I don't want to do this. I know you're going to hurt me. I can't do anything else, though, because the way of Christ is clear. The truth is clear. Here I stand. But there's another passage of Scripture that you need to know about in the midst of all this. And, and it's the last one I want to show you. It's John chapter 16. I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. And, and I want you to read that last sentence with me. But take heart, I have overcome the world. For those of you who didn't get with us that last time, jump with us now. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These men that walked through what they walked through did so because they knew the truth and they couldn't do any other. But they also knew that no matter what circumstance and situation they were in, they were never, in fact, alone. That Christ was with them. That even in the cold and isolation of Siberia allowed them to stand for decades without family, without friends. A deep calling to persevere. Jesus said they're going to hate you. He said, they hated me. So they're going to hate you too as long as you're aligned with me. But he also said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is a temporary process. It may run 70, maybe 80, 90 years tops. And then it's eternity. Father, I pray that we would persevere even when there's no theme music underneath and we're alone that we'd stand for your truth, that we do it by your ways and means and with your heart and your spirit and not our own and not the world's. That, Lord, when we do those kindnesses and we are gracious to other people out of the love and gratefulness that you've given to us, that, that while that may heap coals on their heads, while they may struggle and process that, that, that we wouldn't get caught with that kind of a passive-aggressive action, but just do it releasing to them. And that no matter how these things go, that we would hold true to your truth. That we'd hold true to your faith. Guide us in these things, we pray as your people. And the church said, amen. Next week, we conclude the series.